Okay, let's bring in Kurt Nelson, the founding partner, CEO of Summerhaven. He's joining us this morning to take a look at crude and commodities. Kurt, good to have you with us here to start the week. Thanks, Let, let's begin with, thanks to you, let's begin with uh, OPEC, the production cuts over the weekend and their decision to uh, keep the 2 million barrel per day cuts in place. Yeah, I interpret that as that we're sort of in what Donald Rumsfeld used to call the unknown unknowns. We haven't had uh, an embargo like this put in place by you know, the G7, the EU, and the U.S., before when you know, we we did have an oil crisis back in the 70s but it was a production crisis where uh you know countries in the middle east said we're not going to send oil now we have people saying we're not going to buy your oil so um I, I don't think any experiment like this has happened before um they're also going to try to institute a price cap of 60 dollars a barrel on russian oil but of course none of that oil is going to go to europe or the uk or the us because they've they have an outright ban on russian oil um, I, I interpreted the OPEC statement as we're really not sure what's going to happen, so we're just going to stay the course. Hmm. We're not going to cut. We're not going to increase hmm. production. We're going to wait and see. Of course, they can always schedule an emergency meeting if they need to. But largely, remember, OPEC, there's OPEC and there's OPEC plus. So Russia is not part of OPEC, but they coordinate activity with them. This is probably a great thing for OPEC because Russia is going to have its uh, economy constrained its ability to ship oil and achieve market prices for oil reduced. But meanwhile, uh, very likely it'll create positive pressure on Brent and WTI. That's going to be uh, you know, a positive revenue uh, outcome for a lot of the OPEC nations that are not subject to the embargo. Kurt, talk to us a little bit about uh, what does the EU ban on Russian oil mean in terms of price and ultimately uh, everything that's playing out as far as the demand narrative and the balance there? I think it's positive for oil prices globally that are not constrained by, by the embargo. Um, one of the things that we've looked at is that um, when you have shocks to the market, um, you know, they, they play out differently. In financial markets, largely in stocks, for example, bad, like shock news tends to be bad. You know, you have a, a, an earnings uh, uh, sell-off, you have an accounting scandal, you have something, you'll see these big jump moves in stock prices, they tend to be to the downside rather than to the upside on average. It's the reverse for commodities. When, when news comes out that's a shock to the market, it tends to be positive for price. Um, because it's usually not an announcement that we've suddenly found, you know, 10 million barrels of daily oil production, or we've suddenly figured out how to double our corn production for the year. Usually it's bad news. There was a hurricane. There was um, a derecho windstorm that took out corn or wheat crops in the Midwest. There was, um, you know, military conflict that disrupted supplies. Those all tend to be price positive. So I think um, I, I, it's hard for me to interpret this constriction of supply as anything other than, you know, medium long, long term positive for oil. Um, I would highlight that the embargo does only apply to crude oil. Um, you know, Russia does, does have refineries and they, they do ship distillates. So heating oil will still be going to Europe uh, until February when a ban on those refined products will come into place. Well, and to that point, heating oil has been relatively supported price-wise compared to the WTI back to the January, well, December of uh, 2021 low year lows or levels, I should say, uh, 
as far as I remember, heating oils, you still yet to take up the September lows from this year. So heating oil has been strong. And, you know, uh, these shocks to the market that you're speaking to, obviously the experiment, uh, uh, you know, in terms of this embargo that you were talking to a minute ago, but also this EU situation, it has been positive for prices. We were just pointing out, uh, supported the move off that 73 low, taking out the September lows. But uh, briefly, talk to us, how big of a shock is the dollar coming off? Was this uh, uh, anticipated? Because it doesn't seem to be really fueling the market to the upside in terms of, well, one could argue gold to the upside has been supportive, but it seems like the fundamentals more have been driving crude. Uh, yeah, I think crude is being driven by supply and demand. Okay. Um, you, you mentioned earlier the SPR. I think this is an important point to note. Um, you know, the Strategic Petroleum Reserve is really meant for a, a crisis, um, and, and it's substantial. Um, but we came into a pretty heated election cycle in September, October, November, and the Biden administration was putting, you know, um, I can't recall if it was a million or two million barrels a day into the market to help soften prices at the gas pump, um, consumer concerns about inflation. And I think it's quite interesting to look at that six-month chart that you had or so of oil, and you see the, the, the softening trend for about two months, right up to about the time that we had the elections. And now we've had this rally back to the, the low 80s in oil. Um, this, the, the SPR is, is finite, right? And, and, um, and we've been issuing out of it. That's, that's got to stop at some point um, and probably needs to be replenished. That's going to be you know, future demand to restore those, um, those levels in the SPR that we need to, uh, to avert a, you know, a future crisis. So I think there's a lot of positive things lining up for crude. Let's talk a little bit about gold. Uh, it does seem to be a bit more driven by the U.S. dollar weakness as of recent. Or, I, I mean, correct me, maybe I'm wrong. Is it a, a supply-demand story there as well, or is this uh, more tied to the greenback weakness? I think it's. I think that interest rates maybe are the thing okay. that I focus on the most when okay. it comes to gold, because gold doesn't have a, a dividend, doesn't have an, an interest income, and you have to pay a storage cost. You know, for the last decade. Uh, we earned zero on our savings accounts, and you know interest rates were kind of artificially kept close to zero for a long time. The Fed can't afford to do that anymore. Um, we, we all got very excited about a you know an inflation number that had come off to you know just below eight percent, but but that's a really high number. We're talking about four x the long term target that the Fed wants of two percent. Interest rates are still only four percent right now. So I think Powell's tried to moderate his tone, said, you know, we might be able to lower the scale of hikes during our meetings, but they have a long way to go, Ben. And um, the strong labor report that came out last week really gives them the runway to keep raising rates as needed, because they only have two goals. Um, the Fed has a very simple mission, it's to try to maintain full employment and try to constrain uh, inflation to a, a relatively low target. And uh, you know, the, the labor market is strong. Labor is still tight, wages are going up, uh, but inflation is still much, much too high relative to any kind of stability that we'd want. Uh, so I think the high, the, over the medium term, the, long, the higher interest rates, which I can expect will continue to go up in, uh, in 23, are gonna be a further headwind for gold. The best thing, um, for gold is going to be if we get a, a sharp financial sell-off and there, there could be some panic buying. It's a, it's a great uh, kind of risk-off asset that people tend to, to, to go to. 
Taking a look here real quick at gold as it has been, well, strong this year into uh, that sell-off that we saw here uh, uh, down to the fall lows, but it has started to recover a little bit. And again, this uh, recovery has come as rates have started to ease off. Some of that selling came into play with that really strong rip we saw April uh, into the summer. And uh, when we topped out again this fall, uh, around 4.3 in the TNX we're looking at compared to gold here, gold being this purple line. Uh, Kurt, talk to me because that strong job support, does that really solidify to your point what we are, have been hearing? I mean, Larry Summers, for example, this morning, I heard uh, a talk of he's pushing in, in kind of this narrative of higher for longer. Ultimately, it seems like uh, we're kind of on that course and accepting that narrative. And maybe that's what's weighing on the indices even this morning a bit. I think so. I mean, uh, we've seen a theme uh, over the year that, you know, while, while there's been some sharp rallies in the stock market, equities are down for the year. Yeah. Commodities are up yeah. about 20 to 30 percent. Um, if you look at the action just this morning, you've got, you know, crude up two, two and a half percent and uh, the futures markets for, you know, the S&P down, NASDAQ are down. I think that that um, divergence is probably going to continue going forward. Um, the Fed has a long way to go. Larry Summers has warned about the, the risk of, of sharp rises in inflation, and he was right. Um, you know, another thing that he and other economists have pointed out is this classic Taylor rule. Um, he was a Fed economist uh, back in the 90s, and this is a, the Taylor rule is still used today by the Fed. And to boil it down, you simply have to have interest rates higher than inflation if you want to be effective in bringing the inflation rate down. That's a little scary because interest rates at eight, uh, sorry, interest rates at four uh, percent, inflation at roughly eight right now. Even if it moderates to six, um, supply chain issues um, resolve. Uh, if we see a, a, uh, some type of a, a peace settlement or agreement between Russia and Ukraine, you can imagine there there being some relaxing of pressures on inflation. But even if it moderates to five six percent, we're still below target. So the Fed and the Fed's going to have to get to, you know, seven, eight, nine, ten percent if if uh, inflation stays at these elevated levels. And it becomes once it stays high for a long period of time, it becomes self-reinforcing because um, you know manufacturers and and um, companies have to raise wages for workers. They end up having more money in their pocket. They end up spending that, keeping demand high. So um, I, what I would say is the Fed's going to be very reactive to data. Um, and as long as the data still shows strong labor and high inflation, the Fed will keep hiking, maybe at a slower pace than we saw in 22, but I think it'll keep going higher. Kurt, uh, I'm looking at some of the comments from Larry Summers. He's talking about how 6% is uh, a scenario that he's considering as a possibility. But he said, and, and kind of get back to the uh, discussion we were having a second ago, uh, he's talking about the under best measure of underlying inflation is to look at wages. And he says that uh, basically it seems inflation is a little bit more sustained than what people think and are looking for. So uh, I wanted to get your thoughts on copper. Maybe we can do that over Twitter because it has been rallying on this China news. Uh, but we have to run here a little short on time. Appreciate you joining us here this morning. Kurt Nelson from Summerhaven. Thanks to you, Kurt. Always a pleasure.